Amen. Thank you, Brother Dalton. How many of you are going to heaven? All right. Well, that's just about everybody, I think. But if you're not going to heaven or you don't know you're going to heaven, then pay attention for these next few minutes because before we get through today, you will definitely know how you can go to heaven. I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would, please, to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. And after more than a year and a half of study in the Gospel of John, we've finally come down to the last message. This is message number 75 in the series. And folks, I have really enjoyed preaching this series. And it's with some sadness that we finally do come down to the end. John is a great book. I think it's the clearest book of all the ones in the New Testament that tell us exactly who Jesus is and give us a demonstration of his might and his power and let us know that he is truly God and he is the Savior of the world. Today we're going to back up into chapter 20. Of course, we finished with chapter 21 last week, but we're going to back up to chapter 20 to John's purpose for writing this book. Now, he had only one goal in mind, and that was that everyone who reads this book would understand who Jesus is, and they would know that it's possible for them to have eternal life, and they can go to heaven when they die. I'd like for you to stand with me, please, as we read God's Word today, and Today, I'd like you to read these verses with me. These are the last verses that we're going to read in the series. John chapter 20, verse number 30. So if you'd read this out loud with me, please. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reading of your word today. I ask you, Lord, that you'd speak to our hearts. If there is any person here who doesn't know you as Savior this morning, I just pray, Lord, that before the day is over, they'll come to know you in a a very personal and special way. Lord, I pray for those who are here today that are saved, that we might also take this message to our hearts. And we give you the praise for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Of all the gospel writers, John is the only one who gives us the very specific reason for why he wrote this book. When we come down to chapter 21 and here also in chapter 20, John does not want us to be unclear at all about exactly who Jesus is, what he came to do, what his purpose in life was, all about his death and also about his resurrection. And so throughout the book of John, John highlights seven specific miracles, and he calls those, or he calls those signs, but they're miracles, and he uses those as a framework in order to make a very convincing argument about Jesus. And the question that remains for us as we come down to these particular verses today, and having gone through this entire series in the Gospel of John, are we truly convinced of who Jesus is? Now, today I want us to go back to, and we're going to take out parts of three specific messages that I preached during the series, and we're going to look at those, and we're going to take one more look here at John's message, and we're going to determine today what we should do with all of this information that we have received. Now, first of all, today, as we look back, we must consider all of the facts. Number one, as we look at the Gospel of John, this entire book, the first thing we need to do is to consider all of the facts that John has laid down here. Now, perhaps if you and I or you or I were writing this book, we might have approached the subject in a very much different way than John did. If I were to write an expose of the life of Jesus Christ, 
I would probably start out, first of all, with a physical description of Jesus. I'd be very interested in exactly how tall that Jesus was. I'd, I'd want to know about the color of his hair, and so I would write about that, the color of his eyes, and I would give all the statistics about Jesus in, in, in that particular way. Also, if I were writing the book of John, I think that I would have included much more information about Jesus' childhood. People always ask me questions about that, and people are wondering, what was Jesus doing during his childhood? And I might want to look at all of the friends that he had as he was growing up, what his brothers and sisters thought about him. What would it have been like to live with a perfect child? Now, can you imagine that, that one afternoon you come in crying to your mama, and you say, Mama, do you know what Jesus did? And she says, Nice try. Go back out and play. And, and your child says, you know, Mama, you, you think that Jesus never does anything wrong. He's always right. He's always perfect. And she said, yep, that, that's pretty much it. You're right about that. Well, if I were writing the book, I would include that kind of information. What did his, what did his brothers and sisters think about him as he was growing up? If I were writing this, I would have included more details about other people in the story that we read about. What about that lame man that he healed in chapter 5? What would have been like to walk after all those years. I mean, how did he do that? I mean, why didn't he have to learn how to crawl like a baby does instead of being able to walk? And I wonder about that, and and I'd probably tell more about that. What about that man who was born blind? And for, and for uh, all those years that, that he'd never been able to see, from the very time he was born, he was a grown man now, and now Jesus enables him to see. How did he deal with sight? What frame of reference would he use to tell whether Brian Petro was handsome or ugly? How, how would he know that? You know, I'd be very interested in those kinds of things. If I were John, I certainly would have told more about me. I would have told how that I was great friends with the most important, the most famous person who ever lived. And I would tell all about how that he took me into the inner circle of disciples. And really, I was his favorite person. I'd write about that because I really like to talk about me. I like people to know about me, so I'd write about that. But in fact, as we read the book of John, do you know, and you remember, I'm sure you do, that John never even refers to himself by name in this entire book. This is a book for any honest seeker to find plenty of plain facts about Jesus that they can deal with. So we're going to talk for just a few minutes now, first of all today, about the witnesses and the evidence for Jesus. And we're going to back up here to May 7th of last year, and I preached a message entitled, The Expert Witnesses for Christ. Now notice in our text verse, John says, And truly many other signs did Jesus in the presence of his disciples. Now, the facts about Jesus are found in those signs, and those are the same thing as the miracles that Jesus performed. So first of all, when you consider all the facts, you have to consider the works of Jesus. What about those works? Take your Bible now and turn back to John chapter 5 for just a moment. And I want you to keep John 5 open there because we're going to refer to several verses there. John chapter 5, uh, Jesus is speaking to the Jews that are about, they want to take him and kill him. And Jesus is relating to them the testimony of John the Baptist. Now look at verse number 36, John 5 verse 36. But I have greater witness than that of John. 
For the works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. So Jesus says, I have a greater testimony than the testimony of John the Baptist. Well, John the Baptist was truly a great man. He was told about in the Old Testament that he would be the forerunner of Jesus. He would be the one who would come and introduce Jesus in his public ministry. We go back to John chapter 1, and it was John the Baptist who, who looked at Jesus, pointed him out, and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. When Jesus talked about John the Baptist, he said that there has not been a greater man born among women than John the Baptist. So he was truly a great man. But Jesus says, I have a greater testimony than John the Baptist. He went beyond John the Baptist and he said, now you need to look at the miracles that I do. Look at the works that the Father has given me to do. And you consider all of those miracles because no one else could do those works. And the Jews were at least agreeable to that. You remember that Nicodemus came to him by night and and he, he said the Jews must have been talking about this or showed that they were because he said, we know that you are a teacher who's come from God because no one can do the works that you do unless God is with him. So at least they recognize that. So you have to consider those miracles of Jesus. The miracle of healing blind people and lame people. The miracle in chapter 2 of changing the water into wine. That miracle of speaking, just speaking the words and raising someone up off a deathbed that he'd never even seen personally or talked to. Nobody else could do that. And then surely you'd have to go to John chapter 11 and think about that miracle of the raising of Lazarus. There was Jesus standing at the tomb of Lazarus There where a man had been dead already for four days, his body had already begun to decay, and yet Jesus spoke those words, and that man came up out of that grave. You have to consider that. But as you consider those facts, then surely you must consider the greatest miracle of all, and that's that Jesus takes hell-bound, unworthy, despicable, dirty sinners just like you and me, And he changes them into redeemed, blood-bought, clean, washed saints that will live with him forever in heaven. That's the work that the Father gave him to do. You see, Jesus' work here on earth was not necessarily to do all those mighty miracles. Those were proof. And he didn't come here just to heal people. If that was Jesus' purpose, then today we'd have a Jesus hospital on every corner. But that's not what Jesus came to do. He came to work with the whole man, and he came to change hell-bound sinners into heaven-bound saints. And so you have to consider that fact when you think about this, whether or not you're convinced yet of who Jesus is. Look at the miracles that Jesus performed. But not just miracles, because Jesus also tells us in John chapter 5 that there is the witness of the Father. And he brings up this witness. Look at verses 37 and 38. And the Father himself, which hath sent me, hath borne witness of me. Ye have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape, and ye have not his word abiding in you. For whom he hath sent, him ye believe not. Do you remember what happened at Jesus' baptism? Remember when Jesus was baptized, that there was a voice that came down from heaven, and that was the voice of the Father. Every time that we read in the Old Testament about God speaking, God always spoke through a different intermediary. Sometimes he spoke through angels. 
We do have instances in the Old Testament where there were pre-manifestations of the Son of God and the Son of God spoke. We call those things Christophanies. And so God spoke in different ways in the Old Testament, but no one had really ever heard the voice of God audibly. But at the baptism of Jesus, that happened. A voice came from heaven. It was the voice of God the Father. And he said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And when Jesus mentioned the voice of the Father in this particular passage, the Jews did not dispute it because they heard that voice. If they hadn't heard it, they would have said, no, Jesus, that's not true. We didn't hear anything like that. But in fact, they had heard it. God the Father spoke from heaven. And so when you consider facts, you also have to consider the voice that spoke from heaven telling who Jesus was. And then we think about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus said, I and my Father are one. And if Jesus was not one with the Father, then it would have been impossible for him to come out of that grave under his own power. Folks, no one has ever met a person who was beaten like Jesus was beaten, crucified, put into a tomb, left there for three days. And even before he went into that tomb, I almost forgot this, that soldier stuck that spear into his side to make doubly sure that he was dead. Now, he was already dead by that time, but the soldier wanted to make sure, so he thrust that into his side. They buried Jesus. He was there for three days. And then after three days, Jesus came out of that tomb. Anybody ever meet someone like that? Only Jesus could do that. In Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31, Paul said, And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof, listen, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he raised him from the dead. And so the Bible tells us that God has given us assurance of who Jesus is because he raised him from the dead. And so if you're going to consider facts, you have to consider that. But as you consider it, keep in mind those words of the Apostle Paul. He said, now that you know this, now that God has given us assurance by the resurrection of the dead, it is your duty to repent of all of your sins And put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. God has called upon all men everywhere to repent. Folks, do you see this? The resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. Nothing is the same anymore since Jesus arose from the dead. And so now it's incumbent upon every person who has this information to do something with that information. And the Bible says, now that God has given assurance, you need to repent of your sins. Well, did all of it happen? Did these things happen? The evidence is here. You can't dispute the evidence of the word of God. And so now you must accept that and believe it. But then Jesus goes even further in John chapter 5. There's more testimony because we also have to consider the words of the Bible. You see, we have the infallible, inerrant, immutable word of God that tells us who Jesus is. Back in John chapter 5 again, Jesus said in John 5 verse 39, Search the scriptures... For in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. Go down to verse number 46. For had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. Did you know that Mohammed knew the Old Testament very well? Mohammed claimed that Abraham was his father, but he never said that the Old Testament was written about me. 
Buddha knew the Old Testament. He knew it very well. Knew it better probably than anybody sitting in this room today. But Buddha never said that the Old Testament was written about him. But friends, Jesus Christ said that. He said, those scriptures testify of me. And you have to come to grips with that fact that Jesus of Nazareth tells us that all those Old Testament prophecies were written and testified concerning him. And if we go back and we look in the Old Testament, there are actually hundreds of prophecies that we find there. Those things were fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. And there is not a single person in this world who has ever lived who is able to fulfill all of those prophecies. God's word tells us that Jesus is Jehovah God of the Old Testament. I don't care what Jehovah Witnesses say. I don't care what Mormons say. Jesus Christ is Jehovah God. He's the only God. He's the God of our salvation. And he's the Savior of the world. Now, if you want to know who Jesus is, there's no shortage of facts here. Nobody can say, well, I I just don't believe this because there's not enough evidence to prove it. There's no support. Folks, John wrote this book to refute all of that, to rebuke that idea. There is plenty of evidence here. He gives all the facts. And the only reason that a person could walk away from what John has written saying, I don't believe the facts, is simply because they just don't want to. There's plenty here. They just choose not to believe. And Jesus warned unbelievers. He said in John chapter 5, verse 40, And ye will not come to me that ye might have life. Well, I hope you have John chapter 5 open still because I want you to go up the page to, to verse number 24 because here we find the hope derived from everything that I've said today so far. John chapter 5, verse 24, when Jesus said, Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life, And shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. So here are the facts. Either you believe what he says, or you've got to say about Jesus right now, he is a lunatic and he is a liar because he said all these things about himself. There is no middle ground here. Either Jesus is God and he told the truth about what he said, or you have to admit today that Jesus is nothing but a liar. So consider all the facts. And then when you do, here comes, here's what comes next. Number two is to come to Jesus in faith. Consider all the facts that we've heard and come to Jesus in faith. Do you know the Bible never tells us that we have to put blind faith in anything? The facts are already here. And so the thing that you do when you have those facts, you come to Jesus in faith and you consider him that way. Now, let me take you back to February 19th. 2006, and the sermon entitled, Have You Been Born Again? In order for you to be saved, you have to be born again. Uh, John deals with that in chapter 3, this subject of being born again. So I'm going to give you just a brief compendium of that sermon. If you were to go out on the streets of Roner Park today, and you were to ask people, how can you get from Roner Park to heaven? If you ask people, how do you get from here to heaven? there would be lots of different answers that you would get. Everybody has their means. Everybody has a way that they think that they're going to get to heaven. In a sermon a few weeks ago, I gave you a statistic that said that 77% of all Americans believe that their chances to get to heaven are pretty good. And yet when you talk to them about how to get to heaven, you get all these confusing ways about how that's going to happen. 
If I were to ask you today, how do you get to San Francisco from Rohnert Park? I very seriously doubt that there would be anyone here who would not say, well, you know, take 101 South and you can't miss it. But if I go out and I ask people, how do you get to heaven? Everybody's got a different way. And not only that, but everybody thinks that their way will work. One way is just as good as another. But let me tell you something about Jesus. Jesus is not one of the ways that you can get to heaven. Jesus is the way. And Jesus is the only way that you'll get to heaven. But there are lots of people that are confused about this. So we're going to take just a minute here to talk about some of the misconceptions about how people think you can get to heaven. Probably the biggest misconception, or one of the biggest ones, is this. Salvation is by generation. In other words, salvation is by physical birth. I mean, just the fact that I've been born into the world, that must mean that I'm able to go to heaven. It's not that whether you've been born into a Christian family. It's not whether your parents are Christians or or, or that you live in a Christian nation. And I've met plenty of people, when you ask them, are you going to heaven when you die, that they try to deflect that question. And they come up with other things. You say, are you going to go to heaven when you die? And they say, well, you know something? My grandfather was a Pentecostal preacher. That's his problem. And it's not going to help you at all. And some people say, well, my mama used to read the Bible every week. She read the Bible to us all the time. Well, that's fine for mama. Thank the Lord for mama. But that's not going to do you any good. Here's the facts, folks. You know, I've got this beautiful little grandbaby over there in the nursery. You can go see her if you like. I'll be happy to show her to you. But we've got this beautiful little grandbaby over there. But here's the facts. God does not have grandchildren. So your mama, being a Christian, doesn't have anything to do with whether you are a Christian or not, except for maybe the fact that she gave you the message or, or told you how to be saved. That's a wonderful thing. But when it comes right down to it, you have to deal with the question yourself. Are you saved? Are you a believer? Because you have to know. You can't just be born into the world and go to heaven. So some people think, well, I was born, and uh, since there is no hell, then I must be on my way to heaven. I was behind a car the other day with a bumper sticker with an advertisement on it for the universal, uni, uh, uni, what do they call it? The universal, um, universal church, the, the universal universalist. That's what I'm trying to say. Universal, never mind. I don't think I can get that one out. Unitarian universalist church. That's what I'm trying to say. But there was a sticker for the Unitarian universalist church. I'll get it here in a minute. And you know what they believe? They believe... All people are going to heaven. Dogs and cats and everybody. Everybody's going to go to heaven. But folks, the plain truth of the matter is, being born into the world does not mean that you're going to go to heaven. Second thing is, salvation is not by perspiration. And perhaps this is probably the most popular way that people think they can get to heaven. Salvation is by things that you do. And perspiring religion, that goes all the way back to the time of the Garden of Eden. It's, in fact, that's the oldest religion in the world. When Adam sinned against God and he ate of that forbidden fruit, his first recourse was try to fix the problem himself. And so what Adam did, he put Eve to work in a sweatshop making fig leaf garments. Well, that was a real problem because green was not the color that year. And God didn't like fig leaf garments, and he didn't like Adam trying to fix this thing himself. Adam could not fix the problem. Only God can fix the problem of sin. 
Folks, you'll never get that stain of sin out. You can try lava soap and Formula 409 and OxyClean, and you can try a soft scrub with scrubbing bubbles, and you're not going to get that sin stain out of your soul. The only way that that sin is going to come clean is being washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. But you know, people are busily about it today. People are in that perspiring religion today. And as I'm talking about it right now, there are churches in this city that are teaching people that you've got to work for it, you've got to perspire for it in order to get to heaven. Right over here on Petaluma Hill Road, there's a church that says, you've got to get into these waters of baptism. Let us baptize you and we can wash all of your sins away. You know what that is? It is a fig leaf. That's a fig leaf. And there are people today in churches that are saying, well, here's the thing that you need to do. You need to get out of your rosary beads. You need to bow down to the statue of Mary. And you've got to pray to her. You've got to confess your sins to a priest in a little booth. And then you've got to say your Hail Marys. And you've got to say your Our Fathers. And then you've got to bow down and do this and do that. You've got to get confirmed. And then when you die, you've got to make sure that you get the last rites. Because if you don't, you're in big trouble then. So get this, get that, get all of these things. And you know what it is, folks? Fig leaves, fig leaves, fig leaves, and more fig leaves. Those things will not get you to heaven. You can't get there by what you do. So you might as well stop all that. Stop working your fingers to the bone because you can be as good as you think that you can be, but that will not work. Your goodness will never take you anywhere because the Word of God already has said your righteousness is as filthy rags. The very best that you can do in the sight of God is nothing but filthy rags. Do you know what that word filthy rags, those words can be translated as? Really, this is not, this is not very nice for me to say in, in mixed company. But those words can be translated as menstruous clause. If you don't understand that, go look it up because I'm not going any further. But can you imagine how that God looks at you in your sins without Jesus Christ? Folks, it's not pretty. And you'll not go to heaven trying to bind up your sins in menstruous claws. Salvation is not by your work and your perspiration. Then number three, we can say this, that salvation is not by renunciation. Well, if I can't get to heaven by doing good things, then I'll get to heaven by stop doing bad things. I'll stop all these things I've been doing. I'll get rid of all my vices. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't chew. I don't go with girls who do. I'll get all of those things out of my life, and I'll stop doing that. Well, I recommend that you do stop doing all those things, but I have a big question for you, an important question. What are you going to do about all the things that you've already done? What are you going to do about all those things? You know, I've met plenty of people say, you know, Pastor, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give up the bottle. I'm going to stop drinking. I'm going to get clean and sober. Well, that's wonderful. But you know what will happen to you? You'll go to heaven, or go to hell, rather, clean and sober. You don't get to heaven by stopping doing bad things. I recommend that you don't do bad things. Get all of them out of your life. But that's not going to make you even one step closer to heaven. Because salvation does not come by renunciation. It all comes down to this. Salvation is not by generation. It's not by perspiration. It is not by renunciation, not by inspiration, not by education, not by imitation. Salvation is by regeneration. And folks, that means that you have to be born again. Salvation is by regeneration. 
Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 3, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man is born again, born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Jesus says, you have to be born again. God's the one who has to do the work. Now, what happens here is that God must change your will and your disposition towards sin. God has to be the one who takes you and washes you up and cleans you up. And you know the way that he does that? He does it by the blood of Jesus Christ. He's the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by him. Now, folks, when you've been regenerated, that's when you can say, Lord Jesus, I repent of all of my sins, all of my sins, by the way, A-double-L, all sins. I repent of all my sins. I put my faith and my trust in you alone. In my hand, no price I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And that's when you can begin to sing, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Amazing grace. Only by God's grace will you be saved. So the Bible says you have to be born again. You can't do it. Only God can do that. Well, John gives us all this wonderful information here. This is the most important knowledge that you will ever come by. But that's not all. You do need to be saved. You need to consider all of the facts. And you do need to come to Jesus in faith. And then when you do, here's number three. Commit your life forever. The third thing you must do is commit your life forever. So consider the facts. Come to Jesus in faith. And then commit your life forever. So you commit your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what I'm afraid of? I'm afraid that there's too many preaching today where people say, well, all you have to do is believe, and they stop there and say, you never have to commit anything. You never have to commit anything to the Lord. Just believe, and it matters not if, if, if the Lord becomes the Lord of your life. But I'll tell you something, friends, that when Jesus saves people, he changes people. You'll be changed when you get saved, and there will be evidence of that change. And if there is no evidence of a change, you have nothing to hang your hat on You have nothing there in your life to say, I am saved if there's no change. God changes people. Now, let's go back to February 4th, 2007, and the message, trust and obey. When you get saved, commit your life to Christ, and there will be evidence in your life that you are a Christian. Now, what John has done here for us, he's given us the evidence, the things that show us that Jesus is the Christ. You must trust Jesus in order to be saved. But then Jesus tells us how you're going to prove that you're saved, how you're going to show other people that you're saved. And how is that done? One word, one word, obedience. You obey, and that shows that you've really been born again. Now, here's the first thing you need to do. You need to obey to prove your love for Christ. Now, let's go back to John chapter 14. This is one of the most important chapters in the book of John. Prove your love, and that's the test of obedience. Now, look at verse number 15. If you love me, Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Verse number 21. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. Verse number 23. Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words. Verse number 24. He that loveth me not, keepeth not my sayings. Now, pardon me if I let Luke get in on the action here, but he recorded the words of Jesus in Luke 6, 46, where Jesus said, And why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Maybe there's somebody in here today that you need to learn a little bit about obedience. Maybe you need to learn about that in your church attendance. 
that you need to learn to obey when God says to do this. Maybe some of you need to learn it in your prayer life. Obey God by coming to him in prayer. Some of you need to learn it because you've not yet been baptized. You haven't become a part of the Lord's church. You need to learn something about obedience. And maybe some of you today, you need to learn it in the area of care and concern for other people. These are ways that we show that we love, truly love Jesus Christ. We obey him. Now then, what you need to do is to obey to promote your fellowship with Christ. Now look at verse number 23 of John 14. Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. Well, here's one thing that I hope I've made abundantly clear in preaching from the Gospel of John. Obedience has nothing at all to do with your relationship with God. When you get saved, you'll always have that relationship with God. You'll always be God's child. That no more changes than you can stop being the child of your parents. As long as I live, I will be the child of Gerald and Shirley Smith. And when you get saved, when you become a child of God, you will always be his child. But let me remind you of something, though. You may not always be in fellowship with God. You have the relationship if you've been saved, but you may not be in fellowship. And fellowship comes with strict obedience. You see, as you obey God, you're brought closer into his family. Let me use the illustration that we talked about back in February. There's a difference in being in the family and being in the immediate family. All of us have our extended family, don't we? We have aunts and uncles. We have cousins. We have grandma and grandpa. That's our extended family, and they're all in our family. But when we talk about your immediate family, we're speaking about the ones who pull up a chair under your table every night. Now, most families don't do this anymore, but back when I was young, we had supper time, and that's supper time, not dinner. It was supper time, and all of us were in our place at supper time. We all met around the table, and we had supper together. My dad had his place at the table. My mom had hers. My brother his. My two sisters had their place at the table. And I had my place at the table. When supper time came, we didn't wander off and do something else during supper. We were all right there sitting at the table when supper's being served. Folks, when you're in the family of God, you're saved, you're in the family of God, but you may not be in his immediate family. You know, we sing that song, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. And we look at Jeff, I'm surprised he's a part of the family of God. When you get saved, you're in the family of God. And I thank the Lord for that. I'm in his family. But you know what happened at home if one of us was disobedient? If dad came home and mom said, you know something, Mark did not obey me today. He didn't do what I told him to do. You know what happens? My dad sends me off to my room, and I don't get to sit at the supper table. I'm out of fellowship with the rest of the family because I didn't obey, so I get sent to my room. Now, you can tell by looking at me, I was a very obedient child. I mean, I didn't miss too many suppers, and most of you look like you were very obedient too. But here's the thing about it. When you're not obedient to Christ, you miss out on the intimacy of fellowship. Now, let me remind you of something There is another supper time that's coming. When Jesus was here, 
He ate the last supper with his disciples, but that was not the last supper. There's another supper coming. There's a supper coming in heaven called the marriage feast of the Lamb. And what God is going to do, he's going to gather all of his faithful children around his table. I want to make sure that I get invited to that supper, don't you? And so you need to be obedient to the Lord to ensure you get that invitation. So Jesus says, love and obey him. And he wants you to commit your life to him. Well, here's what will happen when you have committed your life to Christ. If you are committed, you will become a fisher of men. Now, let's go back to that sermon I preached a couple of weeks ago. Don't misunderstand God's call. Jesus told the disciples that they would become fishers of men. He said, I'm going to send you out, and I want you to catch men and women and boys and girls for Jesus Christ. Well, some of the disciples, they were fishermen by trade, and Jesus did not want them to any longer fish for fish. He wanted them to go out there and cast out their nets of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Bring these people in so they can be saved. And do you know that's what God has called us to do? We, adhere, we here at Berean Baptist Church, we are here for one purpose. And let's make sure that we don't miss this purpose. Part of your committing your life to Christ is committing yourself to be his ambassador, to be his witness while you're here on this earth. If God had saved you simply to take you to heaven, then he would have bypassed all the rest of your life and you'd be in heaven right now. But God has saved you in order to conform you to the image of Christ. And that means that he wants to make you just like Jesus Christ. And what was Jesus? Jesus was a fisher of men. He stated his mission and and his purpose in Luke 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. Then before Jesus ascended into heaven, he gave the commission to his disciples. He gave them their mission and their purpose. And he said in John chapter 20, verse 21, As my Father hath sent me, so send I you. I want to ask you today, are you convinced about who Jesus is? Has John given you enough information here? Have you considered all the facts that he gives? Have you committed your life to Jesus Christ? Have you come to him in faith? Have you done all of those things? If you're truly convinced of the message that we read in the Gospel of John, that is exactly what you will do. And if you do that, then John's book has met its purpose. It's performed everything that it was designed to do. And that was to show you who Jesus Christ is and that believing in him, you might have life through his name. So John didn't write about himself. He wasn't interested in John. He was interested in Jesus. He wants you to take a look at Jesus. And Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Lamb of glory. He's the Prince of peace. He's the coming King. He's the fulfillment of the Father. Are you convinced of that? John says, and many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that believing in him, ye might have life through his name. That's the way that you get to heaven. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to preach your word today. Again, Lord, I ask you through this message that you would speak to someone's heart Help someone here who hasn't yet received you as Savior to take this information, consider all the facts, put their faith in you, and then commit their life to you. 
Lord, I just ask you to work in hearts today. Work in the hearts of those that are lost to save them. Work in the hearts of saved that we might truly commit our life to Jesus as we should. Bless in this time of invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.